Amen. When Jesus taught the crowds, he often taught in parables. And you probably recall some of the parables that he taught. One parable, probably the most famous of all his parables, was one where he talked about a farmer going out to scatter seed, and the seed fell on four different types of soil. But after he told that parable, Jesus continued to tell some other parables that also were from the world of agriculture. And in one parable, what he said was that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who goes out to sow his seed. And when he scatters his seed, the seed goes into the earth. And eventually, as the farmer goes to sleep and wakes up day by day, eventually, he said, that seed begins to become a blade of grass. And then that blade turns into a full stock. And then eventually that stock begins to yield fruit. And what Jesus said of the farmer is he said, he himself does not know how. In other words, this farmer was not conscious of the science of the whole thing. He just understood, I put in the seed, time goes by, something grows, and eventually it's edible. And when that day comes, Jesus said, he puts in his sickle and he brings in the harvest. That is a beautiful parable to describe the wonderful secret work of God inside of your heart and inside of my heart. You see, the seed of God's Word is going into our hearts. And as that seed is there within our hearts, and as we continue to avail ourselves to the right environment, being watered and nourished and cultivated and cared for, stuff begins to grow out of our lives. And eventually, a moment comes where all of the sudden, we don't know how it happened, but fruit happened. Growth happened. Produce happened. The secret work of God leading to fruitfulness in life. That is a beautiful description of what we just read of there in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1 through 13. This is not the beginning of David's life with God. This is not the first time that he's heard of the Lord. Not the first time that he's interacted with the Spirit of the Lord. No, David has privately and personally already come to God. He's already a convert. Secretly and quietly out in the fields of Bethlehem, God has been preparing this man. Privately, that little blade of grass called David has grown up and now it's almost time for fruitfulness to come from his life. God is ready to put his sickle into this man so, so that some fruit can come from his life. Now, as I already mentioned to you, David is the replacement for Saul. Saul has been the king now for about 20 years at this point in Israel's history and in Israel's life. And I don't want you to get a bigger idea about what it meant for Saul to be the king of Israel than you should. Because when we think of kings of any nation, we think of thrones and crowns and palaces and a government and all of that. But the thing about Israel is that before Saul had become king, they were not a monarchy, but they were a theocracy. God was their leader. They had the Bible. They had the law. They had a tabernacle that they would worship in. And their leaders were priests and prophets and 
scribes and teachers of the law. They were not an organized nation like we would commonly think of, but they were directly responding to God. But a day came where they wanted a king like all of the nations around them. They told the prophet Samuel. And so Samuel prayed to God. God said, give them a king. And they chose their king, a man named Saul. And again, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. It's actually rather hilarious. On the day of his coronation, everybody gets together. It's this big moment. Samuel prays for Saul. Everybody says, hooray. And then at the end of it, it's like they have no idea what to do. They all just go home, including Saul. He's got no palace. He's got no throne. He goes back to his father's house, and he's like, well, yesterday I was farming. I guess today, as the king of Israel, I go farm. And then eventually, enemies began to attack, and Saul, by the Spirit of the Lord, would defend the people of God and rally some of the men of God and would go out and defend the people of Israel along with his son, Jonathan. And that really, for 20 years or so, was the extent of his reign, was the extent of his kingdom. But a moment had come in Saul's life where it had become clear that he was not concerned with the fame of God. He was not concerned with the honor of God. To put it in our modern terms or in our own church, he was not concerned with the fame of Christ. What he was concerned with was the fame of Saul, the honor of Saul, the name of Saul, the kingdom of Saul. And because of that, God rejected him. And so our story begins with God asking Samuel, how long are you going to mourn Saul seeing that I have rejected him from being the king of Israel? That's a fascinating question for God to ask. To look into a godly man's heart and say, you are sorrowing for something that you should no longer be sorrowing over. It's time for you to put that behind you and it's time for you to move forward. Yes, this has been a loss. Yes, it didn't work out with Saul. Yes, it was a sinful thing that he did. But stop getting hung up on that sin, upon that mistake, upon that error. It's time for you to put those old things behind and press forward to the upward calling of Christ Jesus. And sometimes the Lord has to speak that into our lives because you and I have a history behind us of all these failures, don't we? Last night I was speaking at at our church's high school camp up in Mount Hermon, up in Santa Cruz. And I asked Pastor Josh before the weekend, I said, can you give me a list of all the different people that are going to speak this weekend? I just want to see who's talking. And as I was looking at that list, this reality, this, this, this thing came upon me where I realized, oh, I'm the old guy that's speaking at this thing. Every other teacher, every other speaker is younger than I am. And, you know, there's lots of places I go where it's like, Nate's the young guy to speak. So it's kind of fun to go to a thing where it's like, cool, I get to be the old guy. And as I looked at these 16-year-olds and 15-year-olds and 17-year-olds, as I looked at them, I realized that every single one of them, I'm, I'm, I'm well over twice their age. And, and, and to look back upon my life, you know, when I was 16 years old or 15 years old, yeah, there's a record of some bad things I've done, some mistakes I've done, but man, the older you get, you just accumulate more of that, don't you? And you have to be able to, from time to time, say, I have to move on. 
There's nothing I can do about those things. I can confess them to God. I can make amends with those that I need to make amends with. I can apologize. I can repent. I can seek forgiveness. But like God said to Samuel, how long will I mourn? That's not my identity. I must move on from it because Christ has set me free. And so God speaks to Samuel and says to him, how long are you going to mourn? Go to Bethlehem and ask for Jesse and anoint one of his sons to be the future king in Israel. Now, Bethlehem sounds familiar to us, partly because we just came out of the Christmas season, and so it's fresh in our minds that Jesus, our Messiah, our Christ, our anointed one, was born in this little town of Bethlehem. But there's another reason why Bethlehem should stand out in our mind's eye. Because at the beginning of 2017, we studied first Revelation 1 through 3, but then we went to the Old Testament and studied the four chapters which comprise the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth begins in Moab, but then turns to uh, be centered upon. The story occurs and unfolds in Bethlehem. Ruth moves from Moab and she marries a a man named Boaz, a righteous man. And Ruth and Boaz, they have a child whose name is Obed. And Obed eventually has a child whose name is Jesse, this Jesse, who eventually had many sons, as we'll see in the text, or as we read in the text, but one of them is named David. So David's great-grandmother was Ruth herself, a very godly woman. And so God tells Samuel to go to Bethlehem. Now Samuel objects. He says, God, you know, if Saul hears about it, and he hears that I'm going to anoint a new king, he like is the king, so he's not going to like that too much. He's going to kill me. Now that might sound a little bit extreme when we first heard it, when we first read it, and we might say to ourselves, surely no one would be that bad or that evil, and then we just start looking at human history, and we realize, oh, people have done stuff like this since the beginning of time. And so Saul had jealousy in his heart. So God tells Samuel, he says, well, I want you to take a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice with you, and you bring it into Bethlehem, and you tell everyone that you're going to Bethlehem in order to offer a sacrifice. You can go there under the cover of this sacrifice that you're going to offer to me. And so Samuel, he cruises into town. We read this. And the elders of Bethlehem, they come out to meet Samuel. And they're like, have you come peaceably because it wasn't always a good thing to get a visit from the prophet in those days you know sometimes it meant that there was some kind of sin or cancer in your midst that needed to be addressed so they come out to Samuel and they're like hey are you visiting our little town peaceably and he says peaceably I've come let's have a feast let's offer a sacrifice call for Jesse and his sons one of his sons is going to be the future king in Israel so they get together Jesse arrives, he brings seven of his sons, and the first son, the oldest son, he apparently was tall because God said, don't look at his height. He apparently was handsome, attractive, because God said, don't look at his appearance. But when Samuel saw him, he said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Notice there in verse six, or excuse me, verse seven, the response of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. 
For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. This is the first thing that I want you to see about this incredible story in David's life. What David apparently had going for him were the inner qualifications that God was looking for. And I want you to see here that the way of man, and, and by the way, when God says that, man looks on the outward appearance, don't, wives, elbow your husbands as if it's only men that God is talking to. No, God is saying humanity does this. What mankind does, what humankind does, is that we tend to look at the outward appearance. And what I want you to see is that Samuel was no fool. Samuel was a godly man. He was a discerning man who himself was even duped in this moment, almost tricked in this moment to anoint the wrong person. He was a godly man. In fact, later in the book of Jeremiah, when the prophet Jeremiah was speaking on God's behalf, God was pronouncing judgment upon the people of Israel, and God said, if even Moses or Samuel prayed and asked me to change my mind, I would not relent from this discipline I'm bringing upon Israel at the time. I say that to basically tell you Samuel was in Moses' category, Moses' territory. And a man such as Samuel, even with his spiritual nature being tuned into the things of God, even he fell prey to the classic error of looking to the outward appearances. Now at this point, when you read this, if you've read 1 Samuel 1-15, through you want to jump into the Bible and shake Samuel and say, don't make the same mistake again. Because when they anointed Saul to be the king of Israel, they listed out Saul's qualifications. You want to hear what they were? This comes from 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 2. Here are, Samuel, here are Saul's qualifications to be the king of Israel. He was handsome. As a young man, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. That is the complete and full list of Saul's qualifications to be the king of Israel. They looked around and they're like, dude, that guy, handsome. <laughs> and not only that, I mean, look at him. He's just got it going on. But not only does he got it going on, he is taller than everybody. I mean, he is a leader worth following. And we laugh at the people of Israel, but the reality is this is what humanity so often does. We look to personality, we look to fame, we look to wealth, we look to beauty, we look to the externals and we say that is worth emulation. That is worth following. In fact, it's not hard for us to imagine a world where the only people that could ever be elected to public office are people that are good in front of a camera, sound smooth, are winsome, and all of that. It's no longer, it seems, more and more becoming a battle of who has the best ideas, and it's becoming more and more who is the most beautiful, who is the smoothest, who has the celebrity. But that is the way of man but the way of God is to look upon the heart. He is looking for the inner qualifications. 
Listen from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 at some of the qualifications that Jesus is looking for. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn for the conditions caused by sin. Blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, and the peacemakers. You see, this is the way of God. He is looking for more than what is outward. He is looking for something that is inside of you and me. Now listen, here on this weekend, especially Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, we are a people who long for equality. But the reality is, and this is a word that's been used so often in our modern world, and it actually, I think, is a word that quite often describes the reality. And, it, and it, it, it's the, the word uh, privilege. So often, though, the things that we celebrate, fame, finances, education, beauty, they are things that are given to those who are privileged. But there is a God in heaven who looks down upon people of every tribe and nation and tongue and makes a way for them to bring honor and glory to him no matter where they are, no matter where they live, no matter what country they are a part of. And God has always done this. All throughout the Old Testament, the firstborn was dismissed so that the second, or like in this story, the lastborn could be chosen by God. In the New Testament, God did not choose, Christ did not choose the Pharisees or the scribes of the day. Instead, he chose fishermen to be his disciples, to become his apostles. And in our modern world and environment, if we look out at the world and ask the question, where is the Holy Spirit working most powerfully, most aggressive here on earth today? You know, quite often the answer is not in the developed world, not in the part of the world that is privileged, not in the part of the world where things are clean and all of that, but in the parts of the world that are the, the guts of humanity, the brokenness of humanity. You know, if you looked at a graph today of the conversion of people who were previously Muslim but are now Christian over the last 50 or so years, if you looked at a graph of that, it's, it's a fascinating study. What you discover is that before 1990, the line of, of, of Muslims coming to Christ, it was just relatively flat. The same amount, of, of give or take, almost every single year. And then in 1990, that number jumped upwards. Many Muslims began coming to Christ from 1990 to the early 2000s. And then in the early 2000s, there was another second huge spike that jumped upwards. And many Muslims throughout the world in Muslim countries today, even closed Muslim countries today, are coming to Christ. And the question is, why is that happening? Well, it's not hard to connect the dots. In the early 90s, a radical form of Islam began to be preached in Muslim environments and nations and countries. And many moderate Muslims began to say, man, that's not me. I'm fed up with that. Surely there is another way. Surely there is, a, there is something that is actually true. And many Muslims began coming to Christ during that season. And then in the early 2000s, when militant Islam began to, you know, things like 9-11 began to be very public, many more Muslims seeing that kind of evil said, that's not what I can believe. And they began to, their hearts began to be opened by God to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And the reality is that God is doing things like this all throughout the world. This is the equality of God. You see, you can be a person who's living in Haiti or El Salvador or Africa, and you can bring God great glory because He looks upon the heart. He looks upon the individual, and you can, no matter where you live, no matter what you have, you can bring great glory to God because God does not look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks upon the heart. You could be an aging quadriplegic in your bed feeling unable to do much physically for God and His kingdom, but you can quietly worship the Lord and love the Lord and honor the Lord, and He can look into your heart and say, that is beautiful in my sight. God is not a respecter of persons. All right, so that's point number one. God is looking to the inner qualifications of the heart. I hate asking for these, but I got to ask for an amen this morning as we're going through this. This is, this is good stuff to, to think about God saying, no, I'm not looking to the outward. I'm looking to the inner. Now, Samuel moved on after Eliab, and he moved through all of David's other six brothers, and each one that went by, uh, as we read it, he said, the, the Lord has not chosen this one. The Lord has not chosen this one. It's kind of a comical setting, right? I mean, there's Jesse. Samuel said, bring all your sons. And so he's like, okay, here's all my sons, you know, and they run through number one all the way to number seven. And then Samuel, in verse 11, said to Jesse, are all your sons here? I mean, I told you to bring them all. I went through every one that you brought. And God said no to every one of them. Are they all here? Like, what's going on? Did, did, did God whiff? Did you whiff? Like, what is happening? And Samuel, or excuse me, Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Now, when Jesse refers to David... <clears throat> as his youngest, that is a slightly derogatory term that he's using of David. It's not just that he's saying chronologically he's the youngest, but it's a word that, I mean, especially in that culture, the youngest was often despised, but it was a word that often was translated, usually was translated, most often translated as smallest, but was also translated as less or lesser. There's an idea here from Jesse that he's saying, you know, I just really didn't even think of David. You know, you told me to bring all my sons. I didn't even think of him as being someone who was worthy of meeting here with you. I knew this was a special occasion. I knew that you were going to be here. I knew you were going to be anointing one of my sons. I assumed Eliab, my oldest son, and I knew this was a special deal, but you know, I'm a little too cheap to hire a substitute shepherd, and I'm getting free labor from my youngest son, David. I don't even really think of him like a son. I think of him more like a slave. And so I didn't even bring him here to this great meal. David, in one of his Psalms, would say, my mother and my father have forsaken me. He didn't have much that was positive to say about his father, Jesse. What, what Jesse had done, though, I want you to catch this. This is really important because this is what God wants to do for you and in your life. 
What, what Jesse had done was drive David into the wilderness to take care of sheep. But in driving him away from the family, he was actually driving David towards God. Now this doesn't always happen. There are plenty of times where some kind of evil comes upon a human's life. Some kind of rejection comes upon a human's life. I'll just say it like this. Sometimes even the rejection of a father comes upon a human's life like it did with David. And the response is not that that person is driven towards the Lord, but they are driven deeper into rebellion and resistance and anger. But that is not the way that David responded. Something happened to this young man out in the wilderness. He was out there, and whether it was under the stars one night as he looked at the glory of God's creation, or whether it was one day when he sat at the fringe of a crowd listening to Samuel preach, or whether it was one day when he went to the tabernacle to offer a sacrifice to God, there was some moment where a spark lit in David's heart, and he said, God is God, and I give myself to Him. He loves me, and though my Father will not father me, God will be my my father. And he began to sing these things to the Lord. I believe that it was before this moment that David wrote the beautiful psalm, Psalm 23, where he said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I would have loved to be at that, that meal. I'd have loved to have my father's invitation, but it has not been mine, but the Lord, he is my shepherd. I shall not want. You see, the Lord is looking into your life. The Lord is looking into your heart. And what he wants to do is he wants to, as he's preparing you, as he's working in you, he wants to use even the broken, hurtful, wilderness, painful experiences of your life, just as he did with David, to help build you up for everything that he wants to do in you. I mentioned to you that last night I was up there in Santa Cruz and teaching our high school kids and a few other uh, youth groups that were there from all over the place. And I was so proud of our kids, you know, because they just seemed like the Monterey kids just seemed really mature and dialed in. I, I'm not even joking when I say this, but I began my message and I said to them, every human being is asking three questions, including you and including me. We are all asking three major questions. And as that came out of my mouth, before I said the three questions, I couldn't believe it. These are high school kids. I see them getting out their notepads and they've got their pens. I'm, I'm serious, like 50% of them, even some of the boys, you know, they got out their papers and they're, they're like ready to write down these three questions. And what I said to them is every human being is asking, who am I? Where are my people? Who do I belong to? And what is the meaning of my life? What is the purpose of my life? Why am I here? And the reason I shared this with them is because they were asking us to pick something from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, to share with the kids. And as the old guy, I thought, what kind of fatherly instruction can I give to these kids? And I said to them, every one of those questions is answered with the radical concept that Jesus introduced in Matthew, at the end of Matthew 5 and all through Matthew 6. Pastor Matt touched on a few of those verses a couple of weeks ago. Our Father who is in heaven. 
You see, when, when you understand that, that there is a God in heaven who loves you, who cares for you, when you understand that he sent his son to die for you in your place, when you get that, when that clicks within your heart, one thing that you begin to realize is that even though there are pains, even though there have been pitfalls, even though there have been shortcomings, even though there have been unfair things that have happened to you, painful, ugly things that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy, even though that's the reality that sometimes comes upon the human life and heart, what you begin to realize is, but those things have been used by God and are designed to be, and God is taking them and redeeming them to push me towards himself. And that now I've run to this father because of all the stuff that I've had to go through in life. Would you allow the Lord to do that in your life? Would you allow the Lord to take even the ugliest things of life to teach you how to be a worshiper of the living God, devoted to the living God? You see, God had captured David's heart. The last title that Jesus uses of himself from his own mouth in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, he says, I am the root of David. Now, he's also the offspring of David, but there he says, I'm the root of David. In other words, I got into David's life before I came from his life. I got into his life. I might have shot from him, but I began him. Will you let the Lord be your root? Will you let the Lord take all that pain and redeem it for his honor and glory? All right, now the last thing that we see in our text is the actual anointing of David. You know, he sent, verse 12, he sent for David, he brought him in, and we have this cool little description of David. It says that he was ruddy, he had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome, all right? So you got this young picture, this 15-year-old, 16-year-old young man, he comes running in uh, from the field, and he's ruddy. It's not a word that we use all the time. It speaks of there was something like red about him. You know, this, this Israelite guy, you know, he comes in and there's just something red about him. Maybe his cheeks were all flush from running in from the field. But he's just got like life is pumping through him. And then he's got these beautiful eyes. There's this sparkle. You know, I read one commentator that said blue eyes, but I doubt it highly. He was an Israelite man. You know, there's just this sparkle in his eyes. There's just something beautiful in his eyes, a twinkle in his eyes. And then Samuel couldn't help but notice, dude was handsome. I mean, that's what he was. You know, his older brother might have been the, the tall, you know, kind of handsome, but there was something about this small, ruddy, twinkling eyes, little teenage boy, that there was beauty about him. There was, there was something handsome about him. And Samuel then took the horn of oil after saying, this is he. He took the horn of oil. That's important because when he anointed Saul to be king, he took a little flask, a little itty-bitty flask. But for David, he takes this huge animal's horn filled with oil, and he pours it out upon, uh, upon David. And he anointed him, verse 13, in the midst of his brothers, all of them watching, seeing what God is doing. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now, the thing that I want you to see here is that this is not the only time that David is going to be anointed. It's the first time that he's anointed, but we are going to witness David become anointed three times. 
This is the first time, very privately, there in Bethlehem. Samuel's there. The brothers are there. Some Bethlehemite elders, we assume, are there. Jesse's there. But it's very private. People in Bethlehem know about it, but the nation does not know about it. David then is going to go through life. Samuel just goes home. David goes home. It seems like nothing changes except the Spirit comes upon David from that day forward. One day he's going to go out and kill Goliath, be propelled into national fame and consciousness. But he is going to, for over a decade, toil and be driven into the wilderness. Saul is going to lose his mind and want to kill David about a dozen times. And so that's the first anointing that David will go through. Then, at age 30, his brethren, the tribe of Judah, it's part of the reason why we have a lion as, our, uh, as, as some of the imagery for the life of David, because uh, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And David came from Judah just as Christ has come from Judah. And there's something lion-like to me about that God-hearted kind of person, something bold and brazen about them. But at 30 years of age, he was anointed a second time by only his clan, only his tribe. And he became the king of Judah and also Benjamin, which, encompassed, uh, 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 which was encompassed by Judah. And then, years later, he would be anointed by every tribe, all of Israel. So there was the private anointing and then the public anointing where he became the king over all of the tribes of Israel. It's in this point that we understand that David is a picture of Jesus. Because there is David anointed privately and quietly in the midst of all of his brothers. And the Spirit comes upon him. It helps us remember it. It causes us to, re to remember the, the moment when Jesus stepped out of private obscurity after 30 years of his life and went to the Jordan River and John baptized him. And when he came out of the water, the Spirit descended upon him and the Father spoke and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. It was after that moment that Jesus quoted from the prophet Isaiah and said, the Spirit of the Lord is now upon me. So he was anointed in that quieter, pri more private kind of thing to be launched eventually into that public ministry just as David was. And you know what you and I are living in right now? Well, he's anointed for us. If you're a believer today, he's already the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But we are actually in between anointings, so to speak. David was anointed, but it wasn't until the future years when he would be anointed as the king over the entire nation. And you and I, this is what we're waiting for. Jesus has been anointed. We celebrate his glorious work there upon the cross of Calvary. But we're waiting for that day when he will be publicly, officially anointed and that coronation will sound and he will receive the name King of all kings and Lord of all lords. We're waiting for that moment where he comes and where he appears. So we are currently in the in-between, just like David was on the in-between at this particular moment in time. But let me just say this to put some application into our own lives and into our own hearts. It's not just David, and it's not just Jesus, 
Christ, who by the way, Christ means anointed one or Messiah, it's not just David and it's not just Christ who God intends to anoint. He intends to anoint every single one of his people. And what I mean by that is that Jesus, when he became Jesus Christ, when he became the Messiah, when he became the anointed one, we, like he became a branch of David, we become a branch of Jesus. We're to be an offshoot of Christ. Now you will never be the king of Israel like David was. And you will never be the king of kings and the Lord of lords like Jesus is. But I guarantee you, you are anointed for someone. There are people that God wants to place in your life that he wants you to be a direct influence and make an impact upon. I was praying the other day about just the, the thought of just, man, how do we reach people? How do we interact with people? I mean, I, I, I look out at the world that we're living in, and I hope you know this. I feel a sense of impossibility. I feel a sense of unless God helps us, there is no way that we can do the work of the Great Commission. We need God's strength. We need God's power. We need God's spirit. But I was praying through that and just saying, God, it just feels so impossible I go hang out with these teenage kids and I just feel like, I feel so bad for them. I feel, I feel like, man, you, you are up against it. What, what's in front of you, it's so difficult, it's so hard, but I know Lord can, the Lord can help you, the Lord can strengthen you, the Lord can give you the endurance and the truth that you need. He can put it inside your heart. I know that. But as I was praying about this, this little phrase just popped up in my mind and it was the phrase, one person at a time. One person at a time. I actually honestly thought of this story that Pastor Mike loves to tell about when he felt called into uh, launching uh, Monday night ministry for people stuck in life-dominating sin and then eventually to launch out and take a step of faith to start a residential program. And when he first started that years ago, there was this old proverb, not from the Bible, but just from life, that someone had told him about this a beach where there were all these crabs or something, some kind of sea creature on the ground that they were like stranded because of the tide. And this man was walking down the beach and he was taking one and throwing it in the water, walking down, taking another, throwing it in the water. But there were thousands out there on the beach and someone came up to him and said, what do you think you're doing? How do you think you can make a difference? There are so many out here. And he just picked up the next one, threw it into the water and said, I just made a difference to that one. And I love that story from Mike because that's the heart. That's what we need to have. We need to have that spirit that says, God has anointed me for someone. And I must take this seriously because God is wanting to use me in someone else's life. And so the Lord, the Lord, his desire to anoint you and to anoint me for the work that he has called us to. All right, now Jesus was anointed. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up right now. Jesus was anointed publicly, and one day he's coming. And the question that I have for you is, have you made him your Lord? Have you made him your Savior? Have you accepted what Christ has done for you? He has died on the cross for your sin. He has died on the cross for your shame. He took your judgment, your punishment. He took the wrath of God into his own body for you. 
And this morning, I want to pray for you, and I want to give you a chance. If you've yet to become a Christian, if you've yet to give your life to Jesus, if you've yet to receive that forgiveness, I want to give you a chance to do that this morning and to come into the, the plan of God, the program of God. He made promises to Eve, and he wants to bring you into that family, into that funnel. He wants to do that in your life spiritually. But you have to believe in him. You have to receive him. You have to invite him into your life to forgive you of all uh, you've ever done and to, to give your heart, to give your life to him. So let's close in prayer and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we thank you for your grace, your kindness, your mercy. And Lord, we pray that the truth that is found here in David's life would be a truth, Lord, that invades our hearts as we study this next year. Lord, we pray that the Christ-like things in David would be found, Lord, more and more in us. And if you're here this morning as I'm praying, and what I just described describes you, and it's time for you to give your heart to Christ, I'd ask you right where you're at, even in Sanctuary 2, just raise your hand right where you're at. Say, that's me. I want to become a believer. I want to give my heart to Christ. God bless you, sir. I see you here. Is there anyone else this morning you'd say, that's me. It's time for me to give my heart to Christ. God bless you, brother. I see you here in the front. Is there anyone else you know the Lord is stirring in you? He's working on you. He's drawing you. He's inviting you. Is there anyone else this morning you'd say, that's me? Just shoot your hand up right where you're at. Join these men in saying, it's time for me to receive the forgiveness of God to come into his family. He loves you. He cares for you. Is a beautiful plan for your life. But all of us have fallen short of God's perfection and glory. God bless you there in the back. I see you as well. If you've raised your hand this morning, I want you to pray in your heart like God, uh, uh, to God like this. Say, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Come into my life and make me new. Thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place upon that cross. Forgive me of all I've ever done and ever will do. Come to live inside of me and help me as I now commit to live my life in obedience to you. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen.